Astonishing Legends would like to thank Western Digital, Squarespace, Simply Safe, Quip, BetterHelp, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Several episodes in a row now have been about UFOs, strange encounters, aliens, and other topics that evoke imagery of faraway places and possibly even different dimensions and their visiting inhabitants. But now, it's time to come crashing back to Earth, as well as our more easily accessible version of reality. The man at the center of tonight's astonishing legend did just that, careening towards Earth at 120 miles an hour on a cold and rainy night in 1971. You see, he jumped out of the back of a commercial airliner with $200,000 in ransom money. Whether or not his parachute opened properly and allowed him to land, well, alive, is still being debated. That's right, this is part one of a two-part series about the only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of commercial aviation, the story of D.B. Cooper. As far as the FBI is concerned, although the official investigation is over, the case is still open. They're even enlisting the public's help with it now. The original FBI investigators are of the opinion that Cooper was nothing more than a common and desperate thief. But others disagree. They see him as a Robin Hood, a financial vigilante, or, most significantly, the guy who got away with it. Like all astonishing legends, there is so much more to this story than you might think. Even if you think you know the story of D.B. Cooper, have you heard about the multiple trails of evidence and all the conjecture about who he might have been? There are no usual suspects here, but there are suspects. A few prominent ones, in fact. We'll get to them in part two. But first, let's meet Dan Cooper, or the man who called himself that, when he bought a plane ticket on Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 just before Thanksgiving of 1971. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Miss, I've a bomb here and would like you to sit by me. A note passed by Dan Cooper to a flight attendant somewhere over Washington State on November 24th, 1971. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the infamous skyjacker, D.B. Cooper. And we're back! Where's the record? Oh dear. Uh, Hopefully he will be okay. (laughs) Well, we are back, folks, and thanks for joining us again. Uh, We wanted to remind everyone how grateful we are to have you as listeners, because without you, no us. Indeed. Oh, see, I am back. You are. You're right. Welcome back. Well, thanks for listening, and more importantly, thank you for supporting our sponsors. That and Patreon are the grease that keeps everything going around here, so thank you for that. A quick reminder, the Kecksburg Charity T-shirt, benefiting the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department in the absence of their annual UFO festival this year, is selling like hotcakes. It will be on sale until October 1st, so order while you can. Uh, Even if we consider a second run at some point, it won't be for quite some time. You can find that shirt by clicking the store button at astonishinglegends.com in the upper right corner of our webpage. I've got mine already. Actually, I ordered them. I'm, I'm still waiting, but they, they're arriving pretty fast. Yeah, I've, I'm expecting uh, several this week. I ordered a bunch myself. Oh, very nice. All right. Well, we also wanted to throw in a mention to some of our good friends, 
Jackie and Mark he baby 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 yes what what that okay you're messing with me uh Scott here has phonetically spelled out Mark I've been saying Hubie that can't be how you say that no no I look I honestly never really thought about this until I wrote it out for us to say today but I looked at it on Facebook and they did that you know this is how you pronounce my name thing and they both have it that way on their individual profile pages it's he baby baby no wait. Hibabibi. No, wait. Hibabibi. Will you stop? You're Sorry. Just please. Look, as somebody who has had to put up with a link to an Academy Award winning film for Best Picture and the jokes that came with it for a long time now, many years, and a movie that people cannot seem to forget, don't be messing with us here. You're actually saying that those are the letters that uh, they will have us pronounce. That's here. what they put on their Facebook page. Hibabibi. Anyway, Mark and Jackie. Hibabibi. Yeah, That's Mark it. and Jackie. Hibabibi. Yeah. Hebabebe. Well, at least there aren't any Hebabebe gump jokes that I know of. <laughs> well, Mark and Jackie own a few small businesses, and the reason we know them is because they drove out to see us when we had our joint meetup with Generation Y podcast in Atchison, Kansas a few years ago. And they brought us some wonderful pastries all the way from St. Charles, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. And folks, that's over a four-hour drive. And I think Jackie may have said closer to five with traffic. Whatever it was, they are expert artisan bakers. The snack cakes were perfectly moist and super yummy. And I'm a big fan of shortbread cookies. And they had an assortment of those with really cool and creative paranormal caricature designs on them. It was really a memorable and generous treat. Yeah, and at that point, their last name didn't come up. But the reason we're mentioning them, to be clear, is not because they asked us to, because we, we don't generally do that. We're mentioning them because we wanted to. One of their businesses was recently victimized by a complicated scam that delivered an enormous blow to them financially. We know about it because we saw the posts online. Yeah, and and, and all joking aside, it's, it's really unfortunate. And the details, they're not really important, although Jackie posted most of them online. It's more important about recovering from the hit, especially when things were already dire thanks to COVID. Yeah, so we're just saying that we've met and know these two personally, and they are one of us. Uh, Nobody deserves trouble, but these two really don't. Uh, They've set up a few ways to order gift cards and things online for both their businesses, SugarBot Sweet Shop and Little O's Soda Shop, and are working on shipping goods as well. But uh, I tell you what, if we lived anywhere within 100 miles of them, we would just go by in person. You've been locked up forever (laughs) with COVID anyway. Get out. Do a road trip for a good cause. Yes, indeed. It's delicious and worth the trip. And if you feel so inclined to help out fellow legenders— We're posting links to all that stuff, as well as a copy of Jackie's statement on the whole affair. Yes, and uh, get some delicious food to boot. All right, well, check out our show notes for their story and ways to support them. One last order of business. Forrest, make it happen. Have you ever opened a door you couldn't close? Started something you couldn't finish? That's right, we're talking about Ouija boards here. If you have an astonishing Ouija board story, we'd like to hear it. And soon... So please write it out and email it to us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com with the word Ouija in the subject line so it stands out from the other emails about murder, mayhem, poltergeists, UFOs, and jackalopes. Yeah, folks, we're looking for some good stuff here, uh, primarily first or at least secondhand accounts. If you're sending it in, presume we may use it on the air, so let us know right in the email if that's okay. And if you'd rather stay anonymous, use your real name or uh, pseudonym. Wait, are you referring to Sock Monster 2319? <laughs> yeah, we know who you are. Oh, yeah. Is that a real, uh, yeah, is that a, yeah. a real handle? No, I'll say this because it'll alleviate some back and forth emails here. Well, if you're sending it in, you, of course, uh, would like it read on the air, possibly incorporated into a story, but also no guarantees on that. We have to sift through a bunch of them, I'm sure. But please do tell us 
how you would like your name said, if at all, and a phonetic spelling with that. Yeah, especially if you're Mark and Jackie. <laughs> um, and so send those emails to astonishingcontact at gmail.com and put Ouija in the subject line. Tess is standing by to drop them into the sorting hat. Heba BBE. I got it. I think I got it. Okay, Heba BBE. Oh, also, uh, people, you know how to spell Ouija, right? It's not W-E-E-J-E-E. No, it does that sound like a, that. I, I think know, so. that was a that was actually a crime photographer of of a uh, great renown back in the day. Oh, and uh, you know why they called him Ouija, right? Why? Because he had the sixth sense. He would show up to crime scenes even before some of the police knew. Oh, nice! It's like Night Stalker. He was always on the scene. Yeah, and he had a cigar and uh, one of those uh, big uh, format four by five cameras. The the speed graphics there. And uh, anyway, yeah, look him up. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> I, sorry, I got off track here. Yes, I, I I just like him and his photography here, but it's spelled O. U-I-J-A, right? Yeah. And if you spell it right, then our Gmail filter will uh, pick it up and sort it into a folder for uh, Tess to go through for us. Uh, it is a yes, funky it's, word. It's a, it is a really funky word. And I, you're going to tell me how that word came about because, of course, I've heard legends like the board itself said it wanted to be called that. Now, it's entirely possible, but we're not going to talk that? about it now. We're going to talk okay. about it when we do the Ouija episode. Tonight, it's time to jump out of an airplane. So... Where do we begin? A middle-aged man appearing to be in his mid-40s wearing wait, a dark wait, suit, wait, wait, crisp, wait. iron, white dress shirt. This is not Black Unsolved Legends. Of... What? This is not Unsolved oh. Legends. It's Astonishing Legends. Are you limiting me to one stupid character voice per episode now? Is hey, that, pal. Is that what's you happening said it, to me? Not You're... me. You're not, not me. <laughs> You're... <laughs> that is a pretty good stack, though. I gotta be honest. And, well, I, I'm sorry. Yes, I took a little liberty there because it does start off like an Unsolved Mystery, which... I'm sure I've seen, you know what? I actually didn't look to see what the original uh, Unsolved Mystery episode oh, on yeah. this would have been. This is on there. Yeah. It's, of course. Uh, I'm not a wiki, but I have seen it many times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just it's so perfect for that show. And uh, when we start off with the description here, we're going to lay this all on you. But it's a series of events that got stuck in popular cultural history. Hello, everyone. I'm Owen in Ireland, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Think about the time period. This is 1971. It's a pretty good while ago. And uh, for younger people who may not have heard of him, this is the only unsolved commercial hijacking in the world, I believe, and certainly in the United States, where the guy just got away with it. Whether he's dead or not, he got away with this. He succeeded in evading the authorities, we'll say, depending on right. how, if he did that by becoming a meat waffle or getting up and being able to <laughs> enjoy the spoils of his theft. But let me not put the cart before the airplane. No. <laughs> the, air. the, the luggage cart, of yeah, course. Yeah, the luggage so cart be a lot of, the uh, Yes, I'm sorry. There, there will be some airline puns in this. Not, not too many. But uh, we'll also talk about the history of hijacking or skyjacking, sometimes as it was known back then. But the reason this one stands out is because of the nature of the culprit himself in that he did not match what people think of as a raving lunatic uh, with an eye for a gun that they've snuck on board and is screaming demands. He was just the opposite. So as the story begins here, this is the description. A middle-aged man appearing to be in his mid-40s wearing a dark suit, crisp iron white dress shirt, black tie with a mother-of-pearl tie pin, and carrying a black attache case, approaches the Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter at Portland International Airport. It's the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, Thanksgiving Eve. 
he uses cash to purchase a one-way ticket to Seattle under the alias name Dan Cooper. The aircraft, a Boeing 727-100 designated Flight 305, is scheduled to depart for the approximately 30-minute flight north at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Dan Cooper boards Flight 305 and heads for the rear of the passenger cabin to take his seat, 18C or 18E or some say 15D. Whatever the actual seat, it's near the aft stair door where Cooper has some business to conduct later. While the plane is waiting to taxi for takeoff, he orders a drink, a bourbon and soda, something to calm the nerves, I'm sure, but he seems quite calm and quiet throughout. Flight 305 takes off on time at 2.50 p.m. and after they're in the air, just after 3 p.m., Cooper handed a note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner, who was seated near him in the one-third full cabin in the jump seat that's part of the aft stair door. The aft stairs being an unusual feature of this particular aircraft. Mm -hmm. Schaffner didn't look at the note and dropped it into her purse, thinking Cooper was just giving her his phone number. Dan Cooper then had to lean towards Schaffner and whisper, Miss, you better have a look at that note. I have a bomb. Schaffner then, of course, read the note, which confirmed Cooper's whisper. After she read it, Cooper took it back from her and requested she sit beside him, to which she complied. Because he took it back, it's not known exactly how the note was worded, but Schaffner remembers that it was written neatly, in all caps, and with a felt-tip pen. Schaffner then calmly asked to see the bomb in his attaché case and Cooper let her peek inside. She briefly saw eight red sticks, or cylinders, four on top of four, with a mess of red wires connecting them to what looked like a battery cylinder. Cooper then told Florence Schaffner to write down his demands to take to the captain. This new note demanded 200000 in $20 bills in, quote, negotiable American currency, and he also wanted two primary and two backup parachutes, totaling four, and a fuel truck to be ready on the tarmac in Seattle for refilling as soon as they landed. Shafter brought the note of demands to the captain. Some estimates figure that $200,000 would be around $1.2 million by today's standards. Is that what you have, Scott? Yeah, I looked it up. As you know, I always do. I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> you always yeah, do. Yeah, it was, it's it. almost 1.3. It was 1.275 on, at okay. current rates. Yeah, so that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's enough Probably to do what he did, yeah. <laughs> or at least to attempt it, I would think. Yeah. Right. 200 grand now, like, that's half of a house yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a big city. So maybe not worth what he did. Well, Captain William A. Scott contacted SeaTac ATC, or Seattle-Tacoma Airport Traffic Control, who then contacted local law enforcement and the FBI about the hijacking. So then Flight 305 circles the Puget Sound area for about two hours while the FBI and Seattle police round up Cooper's demands. The president of Northwest Orient Airlines at the time, Donald Nyrop, authorizes the ransom money and orders all employees to cooperate with Cooper's demands. During this time, the remaining 35 passengers were told that they were circling because of a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty, end quote here. The U.S. Air Force at McCord Air Force Base in Seattle offered to provide military-style parachutes, which I'm guessing used a static line to deploy. So what a static line is, is a cord where one end is attached to the aircraft and the other end of the cord is attached to the top of the parachutist's deployment bag, or yes, D-bag. 
get your jokes in here, Scott. <laughs> I'm not making it. I'm not touching that one. With okay. <laughs> well, anyway, well, that's where the chute canopy is packed, which is then packed into a container strapped to the skydiver's back. And as the jumper falls, the static line pulls the chute out of the D-bag, and the rush of air inflates the canopy, which should fully open in about four seconds. And if it doesn't, students are trained on how to cut away the primary chute and deploy the backup chute. So it seems possible Cooper didn't want the Air Force chutes that may have opened automatically, and he demanded instead civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords, which the Seattle Police Department got from a local skydiving school. So it seems to me possibly he had already planned how and when he wanted his chute to open and he wanted to control it. Yeah. No, that was wild speculation on my part to generate some discussion here. But here's the thing. Pay attention to this because the chute matters. Yes. That is one of the main points of the investigation here because it could determine if he lived or died or if he knew what he was doing or not. That's right, because he had four shoots to choose from and the choice of shoot that he made says a lot, potentially, about his experience. Mm -hmm. Of course, also, right. some people say that it doesn't, but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. If it tells you anything about his level of experience of jumping out of aircraft. Right. Well, law enforcement authorities notified Cooper that they had met his demands at 5.24 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Flight 305, which had been circling, then lands at SeaTac Airport at 5.39 p.m. So you think about it, originally it took off around 2.45, 2.50. It's coming back now just under three hours later. The airport was dark by that time, with sundown at least an hour earlier. And Cooper told Captain Scott to park the jet in a lighted but isolated area of the flight line and close the window shades so any snipers couldn't get a shot. Al Lee, the Seattle operations manager for Northwest Orient, walked up to the 727 with the cash in a backpack and the four parachutes, dressed in civilian clothing, so that Cooper wouldn't mistake him for law enforcement. Al Lee then meets flight attendant Tina Mucklow at the aft stair, the ones we mentioned before, to hand her the cash and parachutes. Cooper then orders flight attendant Florence Schaffner, senior flight attendant Alice Hancock, and all the rest of the passengers off the plane. While the jet was refueling, Cooper notified the flight crew he intended to have them fly towards Mexico City on a southeasterly course. With the landing gear down, the cabin unpressurized, the wing flaps lowered 15 degrees, and the 727 flying at a maximum of 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters altitude, and at the lowest minimum airspeed possible without stalling the jet, which is going to be right around 200 knots of airspeed, or 230 miles per hour, or 370 kilometers per hour for those of you not in the States, um, <laughs> which is the ground speed. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. The ground speed. And, and th that's still pretty quick, especially for exiting an aircraft. Yeah. It's going to be violent, but let me ask you this. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Do you think Cooper knew the lowest airspeed a 727 could fly without stalling? Here's my question here. As we go along, there are some things again, that make it seem like he either really studied this. He maybe was a pilot himself or he knew nothing about it, but knew the right questions or right things to ask? Or was this all diversion? And for example here, did he know that that aircraft could make it all the way to Mexico City? I think he knew something, because that speed is too random a request. I looked up the limitations of this particular aircraft. It was a 727-100, not to get too far off the story itself here, but just briefly, with the flaps at 15 degrees, and I don't know if this is for the 100 variant, but this applies to the 727 with the flaps at 15 degrees, the minimum airspeed it can maintain is 205 knots or 235 miles per hour or 378 kilometers per hour. 
So he was pretty spot on with that request. And I I guess the reason you're bringing up about Mexico City is because Captain Scott wound up saying, we don't have enough fuel to get to Mexico City, right? For my notes here, Cooper was told by co-pilot William oh, co-pilot, Radizak right. that the, yeah, that the 727-100's maximum range under those conditions now would only be about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. So they would need to refuel again before entering Mexican airspace. So Okay, so that's interesting. So what that says is it's possible that he knew the range of the aircraft, but he didn't take right. into account the range of the aircraft with the flaps deployed and the extra resistance possibly. And so he didn't, he might not have realized, hey, we're going to run out of gas. With this particular setup, we're not going to have enough gas to get to Mexico City. Exactly. It's not optimal flying conditions for a passenger jet of that size. But what I love about this is that after some deliberations on the options, Cooper and the flight crew agreed that a second refueling could take place in Reno, Nevada. Yeah. So I love that they worked this out. It's like, again, he's not screaming at them. It's like, sir, Mr. Hijacker, that's not possible like you, you already see in these stories. And it's like, I want to fly halfway around the world. It's like nonstop. Well, we, we can't do that. So he he's willing to negotiate and take their advice. Or maybe he knows that it doesn't matter. Oh, and you know what's funny to me? One of the things I did in preparation for this episode was I watched this really great National Geographic special called The Skyjacker That Got Away. Yeah. You know, they do these little segments of reenactments. And this is always a thing for me when I'm seeing a reenactment, but it's a historical documentary style thing. It's like you want to know how much they're making up the dialogue and how much they aren't, you know, because in that (laughs) scene about switching it to Reno, they go to him and say, you know, we can't get to Mexico City. And he just says, let's go to Reno. Reno's nice. (laughs) Did he say that? I don't know if he said that, but whatever. No. Like, who knows what that conversation was really like? I mean, it was still going south, which is what he wanted. He wanted the craft to be going south. Yeah. That's the main thing here. And I'll I'll let you know a little insight. I have a friend who is a producer for some other podcasts that uh, deal with true crime. And sometimes the dialogue is imagined. Well, yes. This is Nat Geo. So, but you know what? They're reenactments. They make it clear it's a reenactment. Well, here's another thing that kind of points to my case here. Okay. So now Cooper wants the 727 to take off with the aft staircase lowered. Okay. That's what we're talking about in the back there yeah. for deplaning and, and getting on the plane so you don't need a jetway and you don't need the drive upstairs. The plane's already got those. But however, headquarters at Northwest Orion opposed the idea, saying like taking off with a staircase lowered would be unsafe. But Cooper insisted that it would be safe. But he agreed to take off with the staircase exit closed and then he was going to open it in flight. So did he tell them that, that, he would though, ass- that I'm going to open it later? No, uh, he apparently insisted that it was safe. So somehow he knew that or he just, no, it is, it's fine. You're going overboard with the safety. You can take off and land with them open. So from my reading, I'm not sure if he actually said, well, don't worry about it then. I'll just open them in flight. But he was certain that it would be safe or at least possible to take off and land with the aft staircase deployed. That request anyway is going to let them know like, wait, what's this guy doing? And I would just want to stop for a second and explain about these stairs because not a lot of planes had these. I don't know which ones, even if any, still do. But for those of you that aren't familiar with them, these are not stairs that come out the side of the aircraft like a Learjet or a private jet or something. They are literally in the back of the fuel sludge at the end of the tail, underneath the tail. They run along the center line of the fuel sludge and come right out the back like the ramp on the back of a, a truck or something like that. It's a clamshell design. It lowers yeah. down. And yeah, so that jump seat that flight attendant Shafter was seated in 
That's part of the uh, the mechanism there. Yes. Well, after a delay with refueling on the apron due to vapor lock with one of the fuel trucks there, the 727 took off around 7.40 p.m. Cooper had been asked by an FAA representative to talk to him in person. I think maybe as a stalling tactic. They, yeah. They do that sometimes. But Cooper denied the request. He wanted to get on his way. But now there were only five souls aboard. Captain William Scott, co-pilot William Radizak, flight engineer Harold Anderson, flight attendant Tina Mucklow, and of course, Cooper. So upon Cooper's orders, once airborne, flight attendant Mucklow was to go into the cockpit, close the door, and stay there for the duration. But before she did, she noticed he was tying something around his waist. Now, there were other things that Tina Mucklow noticed about Cooper during her time aboard with him, because that was quite a while, especially for the two main flight attendants there that dealt with him. The other things that she noticed was that he was very polite. He was articulate, totally calm the entire time. She described him as, quote, rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful. So <laughs> Cooper had paid for another bourbon and soda, and they tried to give Mucklow the change. So he had another drink during this whole time he was in the air with them. Yeah, you might as well relax. The hard part is coming up or one of the hard parts is coming up, but you're already invested in this. It's happening. And also once on the ground in Seattle, Cooper had offered to give the flight crew dinner during the refueling as part of his demands. So he's a bit kind of a thoughtful guy for a hijacker. Yeah. And I, I think the, the impression seemed to be that there was a, not necessarily charming, but there was a charm to him or that he, right. he seemed very calm. I mean, and, and the, my takeaway from this story not to get ahead of myself here, is that right. he was cool as ice, this guy. He dis, did not seem well, rattled or nervous. He right. seemed very focused and like he had a plan. He was going to stick to that plan. And uh, it was pretty well ironed out and he was committed. And I think that's why. He wasn't panicked because he didn't know what to do next. Right. He'd thought this all out. He had done some research. Now, it's going to be weird here when we hear some details because... You'll wonder how much research he actually did. But Mucklow also said that Cooper seemed to know the lay of the land from the air, because he had told her it looks like Tacoma down there when they were over it. And he also knew the drive time from Accord Air Force Base to SeaTac Airport. So he seemed to be from the area, possibly, or at least he knew it or studied it well. Yeah, and if you can recognize a city from the sky at night, that suggests that you might be a pilot as well. Possibly, yeah. There are some things that he was very familiar with, but also that spoke to his demeanor. He, he's a careful, planned guy. He's not a hothead. Uh, he's not angry. He doesn't have a beef. He just thinks he has a way to get away with his cash, and he's got most of it mapped out. Around 8 p.m., a warning light for the rear stair hatch opening came on, and the cockpit crew offered to help with the air stairs via the intercom to Cooper, but he declined. The flight crew could feel the air pressure changing in the cockpit, which told them the door had been opened or the apparatus had been lowered. About 13 minutes later, the 727's tail quickly raised up enough that the pilots had to adjust the trim to get the jet to fly level again. So what people think now is that the action of the aft stair lowering, and it, it lowers with gravity. Right and hydraulics. It doesn't need to be motorized to lower, but that action there caused the tail end of the jet to kick up a little. So they had to adjust for it. So that tells you what's going on back there, because keep in mind, they are all in the cockpit with the door closed. They can't see what he's doing back there. And yeah. again, another part of the plan. According to the National Geographic documentary, they were petrified that he was going to jump and then right. blow up the plane. 
That's what the, that was a concern they had that they, you know, that's it. He's going to get off the plane and then blow it up. And now if you think about it, you think about how airplanes work. It's just like sailing or whatever. They're not pushed up into the air. They're lifted by low pressure on the tops of the wings. And if you think about mm-hmm. those stairs coming down, it probably would generate lift on the top of the stairs, a low pressure area mm-hmm. on the top, which would cause the tail of the plane to want to come down when the stairs are deployed. Right. Now I'm speculating here, but I right. I could I would imagine that that's what you would have to adjust for if you were lowering them. The other thing that's interesting to me too is about him saying, "Oh no, you can take off with these down." It's like, how do you find that out? Like, who do you who do you talk to about that? Because <laughs> that's not that? something you're going to get to try somewhere. Right. You're right. probably going to have to ask a 727 pilot or be around them and say, yeah, you think you could take off with those stairs down? Is that feasible? You know, in a casual <laughs> conversation, where do you meet that guy? Oh, maybe you're a mechanic. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you work at an airline. But more on that later. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't want to head towards the, uh, the, it's like, I don't need to know how to land, just how to take off. Yeah, just how to take off. Can you take off with these stairs down? I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, if someone's late and they're running and trying to catch up, I don't know. Right. Part of the the range of questions that should raise a red flag. Well, at least perhaps it tells you when Cooper jumped approximately 8.13 p.m. Right. Because now, of course, they're going to use all these clues to try and triangulate where he left and where he may have ended up. Well, around 10.15 p.m., the aircraft landed safely at Reno Airport with the aft air stair still deployed. And as the jet was quickly surrounded by local Reno police, FBI agents, Nevada state troopers, and sheriff's deputies, it was not known yet if Cooper was still on board. But as they searched the plane, it became apparent that he was long gone. So soon after the plane took off from Seattle Tacoma Airport, it was followed by five aircraft. And two of them were Corvair F-106 Delta Dart fighter interceptor jets scrambled from McCord Air Force Base. Another was a Lockheed T-33 shooting star training jet from the Air National Guard diverted to the chase until it ran low on fuel and turned back before crossing the Oregon-California border. And that jet never caught up close enough to the 727 to make visual contact. And get this, none of the pilots from the five planes saw Cooper parachute from the plane or had any estimation about where he could have landed. The two F-106 pilots didn't see any object visually or on radar. Whether a body wearing black clothes or a chute opening, any of that, the chances would have been slim anyway, with it being night with low visibility and cloud cover obscuring the ground. So you can't fault them. It would have been nearly impossible to see a a speck leave the plane. Yeah, in the dark and the clouds and the rain. And also they can't match the plane's speed because it's going so slow. So they're having to circle all around it. Yeah, it's no surprise that they didn't see something and it's not like he's got a bright light on him. everybody, this is PJ Hallowell, and I like to sculpt monsters and listen to Astonishing Legends with Forrest and Scott. Actually, let's get back to them right now. Well, I mean, okay, so we're at the point of the narrative where he's left the plane. For all intents and purposes, the rest is a mystery. Yeah. After that point, after 8.13 p.m. of thereabouts, he's gone and now nobody really knows what happened after that, but they're going to try and piece together all these clues. So I thought now would be a good time to go back and discuss some finer points of what we know so far. One thing is that, you know, when you jump out of a plane, you often see people wearing goggles because <laughs> that wind on your eyeballs is stinging at 200 miles an hour. Possibly 230, really. With the it's flaps crazy. at 15 degrees, that's what they're saying. I mean, I mean, maybe it can go a little bit slower. I don't know how hard and fast these limitations of operation are that we found online, but... 
Right. They're saying at 15 degrees, you got to be doing at least 235. Yeah. And here's one of the things I wonder about. He did have an attache case, but it probably had a fake bomb in it. It's not like he had a backpack or a carry-on, a roll-on with some camping gear and some gear he needed. He was very lightly equipped. Here's the other thing is that once flight attendant Florence Schaffner delivered the first note of demands to Captain William Scott, Cooper had put on sunglasses, which is now what you see in one of the now famous police sketches everyone is familiar with. So she goes up to the captain. When she comes back, he's wearing dark sunglasses. They've looked at him enough, but he's going to add a little bit of disguise here. And uh, hopefully he took those off before jumping out. But then again, some eyewear would have been handy. Yeah, but yeah, considering what else he was wearing is just like regular clothes and loafers. Why yeah. not wear sunglasses? I mean, you're completely <laughs> you're just, unprepared yeah. for the elements for this jump. So go ahead, put sunglasses on. Why not put yeah. on a clown hat? You know, Why look just... where you're going because it's going to be a mass of wet, tall trees that you're probably going to get hung up in 70 feet off the ground. Yeah, and this is way before GPS, folks. Like you didn't know where you were. Even in the airplane, you know, it's like, I mean, you did, of course they knew where they were, but there was a whole different type of navigation back then. So it's, and, and as for civilians, you're, if you land in the woods, you're in the woods. Yeah. You got to be pretty smart cookie with a compass to figure out where you are when you land, if you're jumping out of a plane in the middle of the night. Well, we can only assume because so far he's had a, a plan that's worked. He's got everything he needed. He didn't get tackled or, or diverted. He knew what he was doing up to a point, but he jumps out wearing a suit. So who knows? The other thing about it is that he didn't initially or immediately tell anyone in his note where he wanted to go. So again, this is plotted out. And a lot of this, I believe, has been some kind of diversion tactics. It's again, he's like, I want to go to Mexico City. Well, he knows he's not going there that far. Right. But they don't know that. So it's like, well, I plan to jump out around somewhere close to Mount Baker. And then they know they're going to be looking for him. But that was going to be a mystery. And uh, so he he had part of that set up. But then again, why does he demand four parachutes? Is that more diversion? My thoughts on this were that he was worried he was going to get one that was sabotaged. I thought um, about that, yeah. That's one thought I had. Another one was to, like you said, maybe misdirection to keep him guessing, maybe to make them think he's going to make a flight attendant jump or a crew member jump with him. If he was going to keep uh, some passengers on board, maybe to make them think they had an accomplice uh, right. or he had an accomplice on board and that would they would waste time with an investigation searching them. Yeah, I, it's just more diversion, I think. And also he could have been using parts of ones that he didn't use to secure the money to himself you know, to strap things to him. Cause he left with the suitcase as well. He's going with a lot of stuff. And here's the thing about this money, folks. It was, I think 20 pounds or 25 pounds of money. And he had asked for twenties. If he'd asked for hundreds, it would have been about five pounds. Now right. I, I did see a gentleman interviewed in one of the shows I watched. I can't remember if it's a national geographic one or not. I watched also, uh, I think it was Brad Meltzer's show, mm-hmm. uh, decoded possibly about this. Yeah. They interviewed, um, a military jumper, a guy who just jumped a ton. And because everybody's like 20, he had all this weight with this money. He's 20, 20 pounds of, of money or what? And the guy was like, yeah, I've jumped with 180 pounds of stuff. He's like, that's <laughs> really not that big a deal. If you have right, any kind right. of experience at all, and even without experience. So that sort of short circuits that idea is people like, oh, we had this extra weight. He was out of control. It's like, eh, right. it's really not that much. But remember, he took the na- notes back from the cockpit. No notes were found. Right. The only thing he left behind was the tie and yeah. lots of fingerprints. We, we'll talk more about that later, but like 60 mm-hmm. or 70 fingerprints. 
I think that's it, right? And I mean, well, the, one of the one yeah, of his glasses, gonna, I do know that his drink got mixed in with other glasses, and they never figured out which oh, one. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, of course, now it's time to start the investigation because as soon as the FBI had learned of the hijacking in progress in flight, they immediately opened an extensive investigation which would last for many, many years that they called Norjack, N O R J A K, for Northwest hijacking. So as agents searched the 727 for clues and evidence, they discovered Cooper's black JCPenney clip-on tie, which he'd removed. So at least he had the forethought of like, I'm not going to really need this. You know, <laughs> it's like I dressed out a little bit. It, it is interesting to me that he went, he was so careful and took everything with him, including the notes that he circulated, but then he left that tie there intentionally, you know? Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, nowadays, which he may not would want to do is that they were able to get a DNA sample from that tie. Of course, decades later, yes. Yeah, and then, well, there's some interesting stuff about that DNA. I always like wondered what happened with that. We did. I did find this one article by Jack Cloherty. This is uh, on ABC News's website. I'm not sure mm -hmm. where all it was originally published, but they were able to compare that DNA to one suspect. And believe me, the list of suspects is long, and, and we'll talk about that yeah. in, more in part two. But this suspect was a, a gentleman named Lynn D. Cooper, and they compared that <laughs> DNA to his daughter, and it was not oh, a match. But okay. one of the interesting things about the DNA, to get more uh, specific about it, well, actually, here, let me just read you this quote. Over mm -hmm. the years, the story of D.B. Cooper became the stuff of folk songs, books, and movies, but the cold case got warm again earlier this year when it was reignited by Marla Cooper. She provided the FBI with information about her uncle, whom the family called L.D. I remember when this story came out. Yeah. And a guitar strap that may have carried his DNA. Tests later found that the guitar strap did not have any DNA remnants. Cooper also put the Bureau in touch with L.D.'s widow and her daughter. The FBI took a DNA sample from the daughter to compare to the DNA on the clip-on tie, but it did not match up. Mm. FBI Special Agent Fred Gutt told ABC News, it's possible that the DNA sample taken off the tie was not from the hijacker. There are questions about the tie. It may have been borrowed right. or purchased used. The DNA may be from someone else. He also said the tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample lifted off in 2000 to 2001. It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. Yeah, it's something that he wouldn't have bothered with at the time, of course. Right. Uh, but fingerprints, yes, and he wasn't wearing gloves. So also still on the tie, as we said before, was that mother of pearl tie clip. So what that looks like, and, and here's what's kind of cool, is you can see the tie. There's pictures of the tie with the tie clip on the FBI website, and I'll see if I can't lift that and put it in our gallery here, uh, if they don't mind. But you can see the actual clip-on tie here. Not real expensive, J.C. Penny, moderately priced, and uh, leave behindable. Now, I think they'll let us use that picture. They're counting on us to figure out what the Nazi bell is. So, well, you know, there's kind of unspoken camaraderie between yeah, the FBI it's like, and us. Well, that's what this case is here, uh, <laughs> that they are officially done with it. But it's like, hey, all you amateur sleuths have at it. Here's uh, here's what we know. Good luck. And if you, and let us know if you trip onto anything. It's not like they're discouraging people from looking. That's the power of crowdsourcing nowadays. So as we maybe start to talk about former agents and uh, field agents and CIA people, that is one trick that I'd learned that in the field, if they have to dress up, that they'll usually wear a clip-on tie because if you get in a fight, your combatant doesn't use it to choke you with. That's right. And as someone whose first job was selling children's shoes... I thought you were going to say choking people. No, no, no. Oh. My first job was selling children's shoes, which part oh, of that yes. job is being choked by children. Right. I, too, wore a clip-on tie so that when the serious? little jerk balls went to grab it, oh, it just came gosh. right off in their hands. <laughs> that, is, that is one of the first I wish I hard had, uh, life lessons I learned, yeah. 
Yeah, well, the dealing with the general public, that should be a life yes. lesson for all of us on both sides of that equation there. Well, he, he left it so he didn't care. And even back then, it's like, well, good luck with the fingerprints. I don't know what he did about that. But as you stated earlier, yes, 66 unidentified latent fingerprints were lifted from the cabin. And also in the cabin were two of the four parachutes, as we said. So one of the remaining parachutes was opened and two of the suspension cords have been cut from the chute canopy. And here's another curious thing. As many as you campers out there know, parachute cord comes in handy in a survival situation. You'll see now uh, knife handles and, and uh, bracelets made out of them uh, in case you're in a, in a jam. It comes in very handy. And is that what Tina Mucklow saw Cooper wrapping himself with when she glanced back and he was uh, doing his thing there? Yeah, was he question. tying the yeah was he tying that attache case to himself tying the money to himself because he knew uh you're not going to jump out with the just holding the handles on the bags you're going to want to secure that so obviously uh, the extra shoot at least one of them was worthwhile at least for the cords when you think about him jumping out with not only the money but the the bomb which i'm presuming was a fake bomb at this point where did that go? I mean, we'll talk about what they did find, but the only thing they found was related to the money. They have not found anything related to, uh, there was a parachute, but there's some question around that. We'll talk about that in part two. Right. And that was found relatively recently in the history of this case. But the rest of it is, you know, if he didn't make it, you feel like somebody would have stumbled across the attache case with the fake bomb in it. Yeah, but it's very dense down there. And like, again, there's a lot of things that are very rational and calculated about this. Uh, some clever things that uh, Cooper did. And then there's the other half of it, I think, which is why I think this case is is so compelling to people is that there's a lot of things that kind of don't make sense. It's like you, you're going to drop out at night and it gets cold there, as you were saying before. Like, it's cold. It's the winter. It's the night before Thanksgiving. Yeah. You think he might have also maybe waited for, like, a, a, a good Thanksgiving meal? <laughs> this guy, I certainly would have. And then maybe a couple of days later, after you had digested and, and uh, sat back and enjoyed yourself, maybe then go. But that's the day he picked. Gets dark very early. It's very wet and cold. And uh, there's cloud cover. You're going to land in a bunch of trees, perhaps, or break your leg on a rock. A lot of this doesn't really make a lot of sense. But here's another good piece of evidence that was left behind. His description. Because the two flight attendants, Shafter and Mucklow, had spent a fair amount of time with Cooper aboard the flight up close. And they both gave nearly identical physical descriptions, which were used to generate a series of composite sketches. And I believe Shafter and Mucklow were interviewed in separate cities to separate them, obviously. And uh, they got nearly identical descriptions. So, yeah, they got a really good look at this guy without the sunglasses and with the sunglasses. And also, I shout out to flight attendants and, and all the cabin crew because, man, they were pretty cool themselves. And they're trained to be. Yeah. And it takes that kind of temperament because, one, like you said, you're dealing with the general public who is pulling your tie off and, geez, nowadays, throwing all kinds of weirdo tantrums and just awful behavior, but uh, a lot of composure with them, which is also what we saw in Flight 401 in that tragedy there. Yeah, so my hat's off to them, but they were able to get a good look at this guy and be able to describe him 
to a T, which is why I trust the composite sketches. Now, just personally, you'll see that uh, a lot of the times where a witness will give uh, a police sketch artist uh, the description. Nowadays, of course, it's computerized, but when you have a good sketch artist and they're able to lay that out, and then you see the actual guy get caught, and you're like, yeah, it's, it's close. It's yeah. a little, it's, I see the, yeah, you're in the ballpark, but not exact. You know, it's not uh, that close, but, but they're kind of in range there. You see that. Here, I tend to trust these composite sketches much better because, again, he's acting rationally. He's not trying to hide his face other than the sunglasses. He's pleasant. So there should be face-to-face conversation here, contact and interaction. Not the case where, like, don't look at me, you know, you usually see in the, in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> said, look down. So, yeah, they were able to get really good descriptions of this guy, which will help later on with all these other suspects because some really look good on paper, but they don't match the composite sketch. They're not even close, so they're ruled out. This is Paul from New Zealand. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legions. Let's get back to the show. So, of course, now we come to the gumshoe aspect of this, where local police and the FBI immediately began interviews with eyewitnesses and anyone who had come into contact with Cooper in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. They were also questioning possible suspects at this time, immediately. By the time the five-year anniversary of the hijacking rolled around, the FBI had tracked leads across the country and interviewed hundreds of people, resulting in the consideration of over 800 suspects. Which is, oh my gosh, the yeah, work on so that. a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, after all that, I mean, they were able to eliminate all except for about 24 suspects. Not bad, but yeah, a lot of time wasted chasing, uh, you know, false positives here. Perhaps the most significant of these persons of interest early on was an Oregon man who had a minor rap sheet and he caught the attention of the Portland police because of his name. Detectives had to consider the possibility that the alias of Dan Cooper, which he used to buy the ticket, was used in another crime or that the man who purchased the plane ticket was really named Dan Cooper. Sometimes people do that. Again, this case is kind of crazy. Maybe he did use his real name. But that's Dan Cooper without the B initial. So this Oregon man who went by D.B. Cooper was soon eliminated as a suspect. But not before a reporter for the Oregon Journal named James Long would accidentally and forever add him to the legend. Okay, now this is, uh, I just tripped on this uh, maybe last night. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's from the Oregonian. It's an article that was posted on July 22nd of 2016. And the title is Tiny Piece of D.B. Cooper Mystery Solved. Here I, I, I relish actually saying D.B. Cooper Mystery Solved because... I think in this instance, this is mystery solved. This piece of it. Yeah, it was just recently updated here, uh, January 9th, 2019. And this article is by Cale Williams. It seems like a reporter for the Oregonian. I'm just going to kind of read the article here. We'll start off and then you can read the, uh, the actual email by reporter James Long here. So after the introduction in the article here, it continues with uh, saying, the folks over at the Columbia Journalism Review ran a story earlier this week on the role that a local Portland journalist played in the mystery as he worked the night of the hijacking and wrote some of the first stories that were distributed by the wire service United Press International. And Mr. Williams' article goes on to say, soon after this week's story went up, James Long, a reporter who worked at the Oregon Journal, 
a since-closed newspaper in Portland, reached out to the CJR, the Columbia Journalism Review, and explained exactly how Dan turned into DB. It was my mistake, he wrote to CJR in an email. Back in 1971, when rumors of the hijacking started circulating in the newsroom, Long heard that the plane that had been taken over was a Northwest Orient Airlines flight, and he immediately thought of a former co-worker who had gone to do public relations for the airline, CJR reported. Long, who also worked at the Oregonian Oregon Live for roughly two decades, dug through his Rolodex and jumped on the phone. I called as fast as I could, hoping to get through while every other reporter was piling up in line behind me, he told CJR. Someone at the airline confirmed the hijacker's last name was Cooper, but confusion arose when Long tried to nail down the perpetrator's first name. His source was talking to other people, and storms over the Portland area that day made for less than great reception, Long said. Somehow in the confusion, Long ended up with the initials DB. At the time, the Oregon Journal shared a building with offices of United Press International, and the two publications also often shared stories as well. A reporter from the wire service, identified by CJR as Clyde Jabin, grabbed a carbon copy of Long's story, called some information from it, and sent his own version out on the wire, Long said, complete with the initials that would become synonymous with one of the Pacific Northwest's longest-running mysteries. Aha! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and thus, at least the name of the legend of D.B. Cooper was forever cemented into history. And, you know, as you and I have discussed before, this is how sometimes an error in reporting gets passed along and then ends up as one of the things people remember most about a case. The gospel. Yeah. Yep. Just because it's in print doesn't mean you can believe it. And this little trip up actually may have obfuscated one of the biggest clues in this story mm -hmm. because Dan Cooper, that name is not completely obscure in pop culture. It is obscure. Right. But right. it turns out there is a comic book character named Dan Cooper, who yeah. we will be talking about in part two. <laughs> but that's important because, I mean, when you think about it, you think about, oh, it's DB, and all of a sudden it's become DB, and no one's really thinking about Dan Cooper and making that connection in the investigation because everyone's calling him DB Cooper. Yeah, yeah. And it, here's another thing yeah. that we haven't really talked about. At this time, when you wanted to get on an airplane, you walked up to the counter. I think his ticket was like 20 bucks or something. You walk up to the counter, you give him cash. You don't have to show ID. You don't have to tell him your real name. You don't go through an x-ray. They don't x-ray your belongings. Right. You just give them some money and you get on the plane like you're getting on a bus. Yeah. And that's why this was such an easy thing to pull off back then. There was a lot of hijackings going on as well. And there was no less than 15 copycats after this. Right. None of them succeeded, though. It's, you know, one of those cases where uh, a few bad apples now spoils it for the rest of us. <laughs> you used to be able to walk up to the gate. You didn't have to have a ticket or anything. It's like, oh, uh, grandma's flying in from Florida. Let's go meet her right at the gate. And you could meet people as they were getting off the plane. Yeah. But yeah, in the old days, you could just freely walk into the airport and they didn't search you because, uh, yeah, people weren't acting that jerky back then. But uh, once people found out like, hey, you can uh, walk on with almost anything, then it became a thing. And now you have to park five miles away from the airport. And, and uh, take your shoes off. Thank you, Eric Reed. <laughs> yeah. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes, I there's there's a lot about uh, air travel nowadays that uh, was not like it used to be. Maybe there's more comfort. Maybe there's too much comfort nowadays because back then in the old days, people used to dress up 
to get on an airplane. And I know that's hard to believe now because now people are wearing pajamas and bringing full-size pillows like it's a sleepover. <laughs> Comfort is, is is maximum and and maybe stress too much because now people are just behaving like it is their own house. So that was different. You could see why he would be wearing a suit. He's not calling attention to himself. I thought about this like, well, if I was going to do it, man, I maybe wear some coveralls, have a story that... I was a mechanic, you know, uh, flying to, I needed to get to Seattle from Portland, or maybe I work for the airline, you know, some kind of story where you could have some decent clothing, a jumpsuit in there somewhere, rather than just a dark black suit and a dress shirt and loafers. Yeah, he was dressed like a men in black or Agent Smith from the Matrix. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. There, there you go. Exactly right. Well, as we get to the end here of part one, you've heard the actual crime described. You've heard the sequence of events. You heard about the departure and everything that happens after that, we will now reserve for part two in our investigation, our cursory investigation, standing on the shoulders of other people's investigations. But there are a lot of theories out there. Certainly it's one of those things that has captured the imagination of the public. And that's where the FBI has to leave it because after decades of investigating, they have reached the end of what they're capable of doing. And so they issued a statement on where they're going to leave it. But it's not over yet, folks, except for the FBI. So here is what they said. This is a memo from the Seattle FBI field office dated July 12, 2016. So it's not that long ago. Right. Where they finally said, okay, we're going to have to take a break here because we're at a dead end. We can't operate on speculation, people's anecdotes, and my uncle may have done this, or uh, this guy suddenly bought two tractors. There's something that has to be more <laughs> solid about this. So this is their memo on where they're going to leave it, what their stance is currently here from here on out until something else happens. And it's titled, Update on Investigation of 1971 Hijacking by D.B. Cooper. Following one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in our history, on July 8th, 2016, the FBI redirected resources allocated to the D.B. Cooper case in order to focus on other investigative priorities. During the course of the 45-year Norjack investigation, the FBI exhaustively reviewed all credible leads, coordinated between multiple field offices to conduct searches, collected all available evidence, and interviewed all identified witnesses. Over the years, the FBI has applied numerous new and innovative investigative techniques, as well as examined countless items at the FBI laboratory. Evidence obtained during the course of the investigation will now be preserved for historical purposes at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. The mystery surrounding the hijacking of a Northwest Orient Airlines flight in November 1971 by a still unknown individual resulted in significant international attention and a decades-long manhunt. Although the FBI appreciated the immense number of tips provided by members of the public, none to date have resulted in a definitive identification of the hijacker. The tips have conveyed plausible theories, descriptive information about individuals potentially matching the hijacker, and anecdotes to include accounts of sudden, unexplained wealth. In order to solve a case, the FBI must prove culpability beyond a reasonable doubt, and... Unfortunately, none of the well-meaning tips or applications of new investigative technology have yielded the necessary proof. Every time the FBI assesses additional tips for the Norjack case, investigative resources and manpower are diverted from programs that more urgently need attention. 
although the FBI will no longer actively investigate this case. Should specific physical evidence emerge related specifically to the parachutes or the money taken by the hijacker, individuals with those materials are asked to contact their local FBI field office. So, now it's up to you, amateur sleuths and true crime enthusiasts. Well, that covers the chain of events that led to the only unsolved civilian air piracy case in history. But there's a long list of compelling suspects in this case, and this is Astonishing Legends, so we're only just getting started. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on D.B. Cooper. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Owen in Ireland. Pete, Pamela, Jay, Jean. Hi, I'm Paul from New Zealand. I understand that this is with no implied promise of whiskey, galaxy-wide, and November. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 